morning and welcome. It is uh, good to have you here this morning and good to see you. Uh, let me uh, collect myself a bit here. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking of that last song we sang. Uh, if you uh, grew up in a church or uh, your background is in what we would call high church or more liturgical churches, you probably recited the Apostles' Creed almost every Sunday. And we call that a creedal church, and historically, and in our strain of evangelicalism, we are not necessarily a creedal church where we recite uh, the Apostles' Creed or other creeds. There's many of them, actually, through the history of the church. Uh, But that comes as close uh, to being a creed as I've ever seen in music. And it's very powerful, and it's a great way to declare our faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just uh, commend our worship team for leading us in that this morning. Uh, so there we go. On uh, January 2nd, or 20, excuse me, January 28th, 1986, I can remember exactly where I was. We were living in Dallas, Texas at the time, and I was working uh, at a retail uh, a hardwood outlet up in Richardson, Texas, which is extreme north Dallas. Uh, And I was in the the retail showroom and listening to uh, the radio. The radio was on. And then the news came across that uh, the shuttle Challenger at Kennedy Space Center had exploded. And it was such a shock, a shock to our uh, national uh, psyche, if you will, a shock to our space program, And uh, this mission, of course, if you'll remember, if you're old enough to remember, I realize that's a long time ago now, and a lot of you weren't even born at that time. Uh, But on that mission, it was the first time they included a civilian, a school teacher named Krista uh, (laughs) McAuliffe. And uh, the launch, uh, as I read about the history of that launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger, had been delayed a number of times. Uh, And the night before the new launch date, uh, NASA held a long conference call with engineers from Morton Thiokol, which was the contractor that built the Challenger's uh, solid uh, rocket, solid fuel rocket motors. And there was a man there named Alan McDonald. He is one of the Thiokol engineers. And on the day of the launch, it was unusually cold in Florida that day, and that concerned McDonald because he feared that the company's O-ring seals on the Challenger's joints of those uh, rocket engines would not operate properly at that colder temperature. And since the boosters had never been tested at below 53 degrees, McDonald recommended that the launch be postponed again. Uh, but the NASA officials overruled Alan McDonald and requested that the res- a responsible Morton Thiokol official sign off on the decision to launch. McDonald refused to sign the request, but his boss did sign it. And the next morning, McDonald and millions of people around the globe watched as a mere 73 seconds into the flight, the shuttle exploded and burst into flames, of course, with a complete loss of life of the crew. After the accident, a review showed that the cause of the explosion uh, to be what McDonald had feared all along, the O-rings failed to hold their seal in the cold temperature. In other words, some people in the know had foreseen the exact cause of the failure. And so why, even with those warnings, did NASA choose to push on? Alan McDonald, in his writing about that historical event for our country, claims that the NASA officials fell prey to the oldest and most basic sin in the world, and that's the sin of pride. 
And here's what Alan McDonald wrote. He said, NASA had become too successful. They had gotten by for a quarter of a century and never lost a single person going into space. And they had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of that vehicle blew up. Seemed like an impossible task, but they did it. So how could this simple cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All of this success gives you a little bit of arrogance you shouldn't have, but they hadn't stumbled yet, and they just pressed on. They just pressed on. Dave read for us this morning out of the book of Proverbs. We started a series out of Proverbs. It won't be a, a necessarily a verse one to the end of the whole book, ex- expositional uh, approach to the book of Proverbs. We're going to do it more thematically. Uh, and because I only have seven weeks to do this. And so we're going to start this process. And really the passage he read for us, part of this passage he read for us, sets uh, the stage really to give us a good overview of the book of Proverbs in a pro- positive sense. You know, the central, as we said last week, the central verse of the book of Proverbs is chapter 1, verse, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That sets the stage or the tone for the rest of the book of Proverbs. Whether you are very familiar with the book of Proverbs or you have not delved into the book of Proverbs very much, it is the most practical book in the Old Testament. It is as practical as it was when it was gathered together between 900 and 700 B.C. as it is in the 21st century A.D. And so it is a book worthy of our attention The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It repeats this in chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, for by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. And part of the fear of the Lord is this awesome realization of who and what God is and who he is in his character. And one thing to understand that is to understand what God's values are. Have you ever thought about that God has values? I mean, all of us have values. We may not have them written down anywhere, but we do have things we value. There's things we like, things we dislike. There are things we love, things we hate. And the same is with God. He created us in his image. And so when we understand God and what God's values are, then we can start to understand what it means to have the fear of the Lord, to grow in wisdom, to grow in grace in what he has planned for us. And here in the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs, actually we're jumping into an argument that Solomon is writing. He addresses it to his son, clear back in verse five, he's, or chapter five, verse one, he says, my son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. He's passing on generationally wisdom and understanding to the next generation, whether this was literally his son or a group of pupils or people he was mentoring, obviously it was for the nation Israel. And by extension, it comes down to the church today because God has protected the book of Proverbs and included it in the Bible we hold in our hands today. In chapter 6, he says, my son again. So he's addressing his pupils or his literal son, perhaps. We don't know. And so he comes and he, in chapter 6, he is expanding on this idea that there are 
immoral people around his son. And he's trying to teach his son wisdom to avoid these things. And in chapter 6, there are three different types of immoral people listed here. The first one in verses 1 through 5 is one who becomes surety, which in other words, you you become in bondage under another one, whether it's through loans or other things that are not right at that particular time. Verse 6 through 11, O sluggard. You don't want to be the lazy man. He's another one. And then chapters 12 through 19, there are seven marks of insurrection. There's an insurrectionist. There's a rebellion going on. He talks about the wicked man in verse 12. So what our focus today is going to be verses 16 through 19. In there, he says, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Have you ever asked the question, what does God hate? Now, in our day and age of tolerance, that rings kind of severe against our hearing, doesn't it? Because we live in a society that values tolerance above all things. At least that's what they say. But philosophically, the people who say they're tolerant are really intolerant because they're saying they're putting themselves at a higher plane than the one they're being tolerant of. They're tolerating something that they don't agree with. And so philosophically, it does not hold water. And so this sounds pretty sharp to our ears in our day and age that God would hate something. You know, we talk a lot about what God loves and about God's grace, about his mercy, but we need to look at what God hates. And this actually is a good place to be in the book of Proverbs because just like a photograph's negative. Now, I know with digital cameras now, we don't have a strip of negatives that we get back from the processor of our film. This really dates me, you know. I used to get the strip of negatives back from my 35-millimeter camera plus the positive images in slides or in prints, okay? I think on a digital camera, you can still make a negative and make it look like a negative, but it's the reverse image. And what we're going to do in the next seven weeks, beginning today, is we're going to take these seven things that God hates. That's the negative image. These are stated in a very negative way, a negative value, God hates these things, but then we're going to look at some other various verses that is the flip side or the positive image of these negative images of what God hates. And so what does God love? What does God hate? These are good questions to wrestle with. In these verses, uh, Solomon gave us basically a, a photographic image of the values of God in negative form. But from the negative, we can develop the the, the positive picture of what God values. And by doing so, by going through these seven items, we will get an overview or a picture of these issues in the book of Proverbs is primarily where we're going to look. So I would encourage you to have your Bibles at the ready because we will be looking at various verses, at least write down the verse references that I give you later. And uh, you can look those up in, if you use the bulletin outline. But, uh, but by telling us, Solomon, by telling us uh, under the inspiration of God what arouses the anger of the heavens, Solomon also shows us what it means to bring a smile to the face of God. And so this is an approach we're going to use. I believe these verses in 16 through 19 uh, are really a summation of the whole book of Proverbs in negative form. And so you need to hang with me here. And so we're going to look closer at what God values, at his value system, what he hates, and then what he loves. 
And these rich images will give us practical advice for day-to-day living out of the book of Proverbs. Remember, the fear of the Lord is more than just reverential trust. It includes being afraid of displeasing him, being afraid of displeasing him. It recognizes his holiness and his uh, his holiness and our sinfulness. It realizes that his anger is something to be avoided. It produces a desire to please and trust him. I think until we come to full grips with the sinfulness in our lives, we don't really understand or value the holiness of God. Let me illustrate it this way out of my own life. I was saved at age 28, accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. At that time, I was in the logging industry. I was a logger, heavy equipment operator, skidding logs. And uh, I, uh, we became believers. I was, Don became a believer about a year before I did, and I was 28 when I accepted Christ as Savior. And I know this will shock some of you, but my verbal ability was logger, okay? You get the idea? You know, cursing is an art form to loggers. And uh, we could, you know, you could do a whole sentence of curse words, and it would make sense. Uh, And I was plagued. I remember when I was 12 years old in Denver, Colorado, a friend of mine and I, an older guy, an older uh, guy a year or two older than me, we'd go fishing together, and he would curse like a sailor. And that's how I learned to curse, because I didn't learn it at home. My parents, my grandparents, I never heard anybody curse until I spent those fishing trips with David. And he was the one who taught me how to swear. And I thought it was pretty cool. Hey, I'm learning new vocabulary. So anyway, I'm getting off track here. But anyway, as a logger, one winter after becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, I could not control my tongue. I could not control it. I was cursing and just, it finally got to the point where I would break down and cry in the woods. I would be running a cat, skidding logs, and uh, I remember hurting myself on something, and I just let out this stream of profanities, and I just cried because I wanted God to take it away. It was ugly. It was disgusting, and I knew it was sin. And it was at that moment I realized that God is completely other. He is holy. And what I was doing was displeasing him. And God hates that. And I recognize that. And what's amazing about that is I prayed and prayed, and about six months later I realized that my vocabulary had changed. It wasn't necessarily through, I'm not going to do that anymore, but God changed me and took that away from me. I was still in the woods. I was still associated with all that stuff. But God changed me and took that away from me. But in verses 16 through 19, as we contemplate the holiness of God, where he tells us here that these six things he hates, these seven things are an abomination to him. If you do a word study of what is an abomination to God, it will be very eye-opening for you. But these values in negative form, uh, we see that God hates things in the Old Testament. If you get out your concordance or if you have Bible software, you can do a word search on the English word hate in the Old Testament or the New Testament and come up with quite a list of what God hates. So God does have values. Yes, he is a God of love. Yes, he is a God of mercy. Praise God. Yes, he is a God of grace. But there still is the opportunity to misuse those things. 
in this list, in this list that he gives us in verses 17 through 19, there are seven things listed. And each one uh, is really, the first five are misused body parts. If you notice, he talks about haughty eyes, which are basically a prideful look, a lying tongue, so eyes, tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deliver, devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. So we have eyes, tongue, hands, heart, feet. He kind of It's a mnemonic. It's a way to memorize these things. Uh, because the people of Solomon's day and thereafter, you know, they didn't have a copy of God's word in their hands, uh, so they would memorize the word of God. In fact, uh, the Jewish people were very good at memorizing and had a great oral history because not everybody had a book to write in or a book to read, so they had to memorize these things. And this was a helpful picture if we could think of our own physical frame and you think of our eyes, our tongue, our hands, our heart, our feet, and those five things that are misused, as he says, he hates them. And then there's two, to fill out the seven, there's two antisocial actions, a false witness who utters lies and a strife spreader or one who spreads strife among the brethren. Uh, one of the commentators, W.H. Uh, McCain, notes that the types of behavior under consideration here have this in common. They are all disruptive in their tendency they all characterize it. They're all characterized by self-assertiveness. They're characterized by malice, and they're characterized by violence. That they break the bond of confidence of loyalty between men and women and people in general. Each one affects the ruin of its victims, but they will boomerang and ruin the troublemaker. And this is Solomon's point with this section of Proverbs: is that. Uh, yes, these things are going on, but they will come back and bite you. God is going to make sure of that. Remember the theme of, of the whole book of Proverbs we found back in chapter 1, uh, in the, the first part of chapter 1 of Proverbs in, in uh, verses 2 through 6. The purpose uh, statement is found there, and it's to impart moral discernment and discretion and to develop mental clarity and perception. And so God's values in the negative form. And today, very quickly, we're going to look at the first one. God hates a proud look. And here we have the eyes or a haughty look, as some of our translations have, which simply means high and lofty. It's an expression of an inner reality. Uh, people who are very proud and look very proud in a negative way. I mean, we can be proud of what God is doing through us. We can be proud of what God is doing and our accomplishments in that sense. But this is beyond that. God tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, that we need to have wisdom and instruction. Wisdom means skill for living. Skill for living. And instruction means discipline. And I mentioned this last week, that no skill is perfected without discipline. I think of uh, Morgan Grant. He has learned to weld. And uh, when I worked in heavy equipment, I could weld a little bit, but I wouldn't call it welding. My father-in-law, who was a welder, he would just come over and look at my welding and walk away just shaking his head. I, at the time, I thought he was just really impressed, but I realized, <laughs> no, that wasn't it at all. You know. Uh, and so Morgan has learned to weld, but he's not just picked up the welder and done it. He's learned, he's had understanding, and he's applied himself to the discipline of learning how to do it. And that's what Solomon in the book of Proverbs is about, is the sense that we 
have skill and discipline to practice the skill. We don't learn any skill without the discipline to learn how to do it. And Proverbs deals with the most fundamental skill of all, and that's practical righteousness before God in every area of our lives. It requires knowledge, experience, and a willingness to pursue the skill, the wisdom in doing that. And that's what uh, Solomon is doing here. It says here that the Lord hates a proud look. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 10, we have a description of the Assyrians. Isaiah the prophet is describing the Assyrians who are threatening to come carry off Israel into captivity. And he talks about them in, in the Hebrew word means arrogant ambition, arrogant ambition. And we see a lot of that, have seen a lot of that through an election year last year, a lot of arrogant ambition on the part of some politicians. The book of Proverbs show us that the heavens shudder when we look down our nose at a brother in Christ or anybody. The heavens shudder. This is serious stuff. God sees us when we assume that our interests and pains give us a right to disregard the interests and pains of other people. His emotions are aroused when we act as though we are the center of the universe, which we assume that we exist for our own enjoyment or when we rely on our natural instincts rather than taking pains to pursue the wisdom and knowledge of God. The book of Proverbs warns us about the danger of assuming the righteous of our own thoughts and interests because Solomon said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. So I looked at this whole issue of pride in the book of Proverbs. The whole issue of pride and, and other related words like being proud. Proverbs fifteen twenty five, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs sixteen five. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 21, 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin. And then the word pride, Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. That's God speaking. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 21, 24, proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride, talking about the fool. In Proverbs 30, verses 12 through 13, where the, 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 the uh, pro- proverb says, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifting up. The word pictures are there. You know, the, the physical manifestation of having a proud look is just a re- reflection of what is really in the heart The word pictures and wise sayings of the book of Proverbs show us why God hates the proud look. As one writer says, pride makes a fool of those who possess it. It results in self-deception for it creates an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. Pride results in disagreement with God and reflects an unwillingness to trust him. Pride removes a basis for relationship with God. It results in personal embarrassment broken hearts, and destruction. 
So we come to this issue of God's values in positive form. What is the antonym of pride, the opposite? Humility. I heard it out there. Okay, humility. Proverbs has a lot to say about humility. In fact, uh, I was reading uh, John MacArthur's commentary. If you're familiar with him, he's a, on the radio, Southern California preacher. But he relates that when one time when he was in New Orleans, uh, he was uh, going down uh, the street by a number of shops, and there was one particularly aggressive saleswoman who accosted him. She practically dragged me into her store, he said. And she would tell him, why don't you come in? You might want to buy something. As I looked around, John MacArthur said, I observed that the only thing she sold was women's clothing. And I told her as she got more aggressive, John MacArthur relates, that I have one basic rule. I don't buy women's clothing for me, and I don't buy women's clothing for my wife because I might get the wrong thing, especially since I'm out of town. Well, this woman, this saleswoman, had a quick combat. She said, well, it doesn't matter. All these clothes fit everybody. <laughs> and uh, John MacArthur thought to himself, if I brought home something for my wife that would fit everybody, she wouldn't take it as a compliment. <laughs> Biblically, there's only one garment that can honestly be advertised as one size fits all. And that's the garment of humility, which every believer is commanded to put on. So God's values in positive form. When we think of humility, Proverbs 15:33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Proverbs 18:12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Proverbs 22:4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. To be humble in Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.19, it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. A New Testament uh, corollary to this, this idea of clothing is the Apostle Peter wrote, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, 1 Peter 1.5. And he had a specific image in mind, that word, clothe yourselves. It's a Greek term which means to tie something around yourself with a knot or with a bow. And it came especially to refer to a work apron. And it's an apron that a slave would wear in the Roman world that covered them clothes, their clothes to keep them clean. And it became a synonym for humble service. Humility is an attitude that you're not too good to serve others and that you are not too great to stoop. It was not considered a virtue in the ancient world. That's why they had slaves who did those types of things. Sadly, in our culture, we've probably reverted somewhat to those times where humble people today get mocked or trampled upon. The world calls them wimps instead of uh, exalting and, and also exalts the macho people. Although there was no difference in Peter's day, he called us to be different. And he probably was thinking, when you put on the garment of humility, he was probably thinking of that incident recorded in John's Gospel, John chapter 13, where Jesus rose from that uh, Last Supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel, girded himself about, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, which he 
had girded around himself. The complete sovereign picture of humility because none of his other disciples, they were going to lower themselves to do that, but Jesus did it for them. And probably the central text about humility is Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself, and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. But you know, there's a warning in that. It's impossible to be like Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us and motivates us to serve like a servant. It's been said, how do you know if you're a servant? It happens when you're treated like one. Then you know. It's challenging to regard someone else more important than yourself. Pride and selfishness dwell naturally in our fallen human flesh. Jesus is the example to follow. Paul went on to say how Christ first existed in an uh, exalted state with the Father, but then humbled himself to the point of shameful death that he might serve us and fulfill the will of the Father. So the first step in enjoying the blessings of humility is to stoop to serve even the unworthy. Yesterday, uh, I do what I do best when I go to Safeway. I sit in my vehicle in the parking lot and play the radio. That's my skill, by the way. Well, I wait for my wife to shop. and She doesn't like me to come in because I tend to bounce from foot to foot, you know, and do lev- real heavy sighing, <sighs> you know, because my back starts hurting, you know, and all legs get tired. Anyway, I was sitting there, and uh, I noticed this guy who looked like a transient uh, at, at the front door, safe. We had a backpack and ragged clothes and it looked pretty rough, and uh, I parked, and I was sitting there listening to the radio, and I saw him approaching. And uh, automatically, you know, having lived in Dallas and being in other big cities, my antenna went up, you know, self-protective. I almost rolled my window up, but I thought, that's, that's kind of blatant, you know. And uh, he came over, and he asked me about my truck, and, and then we started talking about his life and about what he was doing. He had a sad story. Uh, I, I must mention that he was a graduate of Nebraska. And not, <laughs> nothing ab- about Lincoln over there, but that's where he was from. But he was struggling and uh, had some troubles with the law. He was fulfilling his obligation to the state. And uh, he was just really down, down in the dumps there. And I realized that, uh, you know, what can I do to help you? And he didn't ask me for any money, which is what I fully expected. And we talked for quite a while. And after he left, he thanked me for and shook my hand and thanked me for just listening. And uh, I was just, I was taken aback because usually, uh, you know, the shields go up when I'm approached in those kinds of situations. And uh, uh, so God, I'm praying for that man and praying that he does get back on his feet, that we can help him somehow. Uh, Emperor Napoleon, uh, which you're all well aware of, uh, he commissioned artists to memorialize him. And he's always portrayed in some great, grandiose form. He's uh, standing defiantly with his right hand pushed between his vest buttons, or he's his hero, uh, portrayed as a hero astride uh, a fighting uh, war horse pointing the way for his troops. 
his hat makes him instantly re- recognizable. And he was a proud man, uh, driven by the ambition to conquer the world. And on the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was describing to his commanding officers his strategy for that day's campaign against England. He said, we'll put the infantry over here, the cavalry over here, the artillery on that spot. At the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the, the prisoner of Napoleon. The commanding officer responded, one of the officers responded, but sir, we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. And with typical arrogance, uh, the dictator pulled his body to his full height and replied, I want you to understand that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. Later, after the Battle of Waterloo, uh, Victor Hugo, the novelist, wrote, quote, From that moment, Waterloo was lost. For God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he had planned. And on the night of the battle, it was Napoleon who was a prisoner of Wellington and France was at the feet of England. If you asked me what the most fundamental sin is, I would answer without hesitation the sin of pride. It is the original sin. It is the basic sin to all other sins. It is simply exaggerated in dishonest self-evaluation. It was a sin that began sin when Satan said, I will be like the most high God. So if we take and summarize all the Old Testament Proverbs, we could easily do it with one key verse from the New Testament. And that's James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Very practical advice from the book of Proverbs today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this morning. Lord's table, as we 